Okay, I'm joking. <laughs> everything is war. Or everything is the boundless. Which is an interesting thought. Okay. Um, what'd you find out? Come on now, this is full of great wisdom, wasn't it? You're all smiling over there. What? what? Did you enjoy this reading? Go ahead, admit you did. Well, lie, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, what do you like so much about it? It's confusing. And confusing? Fun, yeah, because like, there's so many words and so many ideas that, I don't know, it's just fun. Okay, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Here we are. All right. Um, there's a reason why I started with Homer. At least you can figure out what's going on if you really put in the time um, one thing after another, and there's nothing terribly mysterious. Whereas here we find out that we must think and say that being is. How many of you are willing to say and think that being is? You? The arm, yeah? All right, so he's wounded and he thinks being is. What about the rest of you? What's your excuse? Yeah? Parmenides is another level. That's a nice way of putting this. Yes, Parmenides is another level. Another level of what? <laughs> well, I mean, just being is, it's just like, that's, I guess, it's the English way of saying it, but like, what can you say about being is? Like, nothing, you can't say well, it would be much more worrisome if being were not. From that way, he debars you. You were just about to say being isn't right. And then yeah, stop like you. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many of you think that being is? You do. You're a special person. <laughs> Talking the rest of you. You think that being is? You know. Um, how did you find out? Well, I guess if it's really complex, but if you just put it in simplest terms, like being is being is just like everything. It, it exists. I think is what it's saying. Being is just like everything. It exists. It exists. That's what being is. <laughs> well, that, that clears things up. <laughs> there we are. Being is, it's like everything. Um, yeah, you noticed something else about being. Go ahead. Um, sorry, I just have a question about like parallels between work and uh, like stuff like this. Would the thing being is, would that have anything to do with um, Plato's like idea of true philosophy? Yeah, that's going to that's going to turn out to be important. Yeah, but not until you pay your dues here. Right. right. The blessed relief of Plato. <laughs> relief. <laughs> Committed this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, how many of you don't think that being is? You don't. Mm, I don't know. Kind of all depends about it. Oh, that's peculiar. Like a little oh, what would be properly complicated? If everything is changing, doesn't it turn into something else? No. Oh. What's it like when everything changes into something else? What's it involved is. with that? It is. It is? It, like, even if it's changing, it's going to become something. So it 
is something. Uh -huh. So, things that are change. Mm -hmm. mm, okay, well that'll set things up there. All right, so, change and not changing has something to do with being and not being. Yeah. Um, my, I don't know if this connects to Ben's point, but yeah, my thought is that so like we like th things are, mm -hmm. and then so but so wouldn't there be something else that needs to kind of support being? Like being can't support itself. Like we are the ones who can sustain being. So what do you do when you support being? Do you vote for it or what's involved? <laughs> I don't know. Does being need your support? <laughs> How's it gotten by without your support all these years? Yeah. Could you say that being is something we use to describe things that exist, but is not a thing in itself? Because if nothing existed, oh, I'm afraid you have to slow that down. Correct me again. Could you say that being is a term we use to describe things that are, but it is not a thing in itself, except in the way that we discuss it as a concept? Because if we weren't talking about I bet if I think about that for a long time, I'll figure out what you're talking about. Um, it would be very awkward for being not to be. I mean, think of the many difficulties that would lead to. Um, we can say that it has something to do with existence, except that existence just seems like another word for being. So it really doesn't tell us anything, does it? If you discuss it as a way to describe things that are, like if I say that this table I'm not necessarily talking about being at the moment, at least. I know there are whole discourses written about being, but at the moment, if you're talking about this table is, uh, you're talking about being in the sense that it relates to a physical thing. So I'm not saying you should redefine being as existence, which was a thing. Okay. So that table all right, has some sort of connection to being. Is that, is that the case? The table is. Oh, the so. table is. So the table is being? The table exists, and uh -huh. by existing, we can discuss being. But okay, so if the table didn't exist, we couldn't discuss being? If nothing existed, we couldn't discuss being. Oh, it would probably get in the way of us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see many difficulties with that line of <laughs> argument. Well, what about you guys? Are you, be, are you comfortable being what you are? Yeah. yeah. All right. So, what was this all about? What's this being? Being is. Come on, now you know full well being is. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you do. Okay. How do you know? Um, this is the last time I checked, I exist. Mm. What was it like to check on your existence? <laughs> I can't answer that. <laughs> what? I can't answer that. Oh. Well, it kind of thwarts further discussion if you think about it. Uh, being is, that's an interesting thought. Were any of you tempted prior to this to say that being isn't? Why not? Mm. Okay, we'll come back. Yeah, go ahead. Oh.
experience the far reaches of the galaxy. Um, I would think that I could talk about it, but I don't know. Well, I guess my point was it kind of made me think of like um, Wittgenstein. Don't go there. (laughs) What right have you to talk about Wittgenstein yet? You have a whole term to get through. Wittgenstein, for those of you there uh, that haven't taken the second half, she has. um, That's how we finish up. Yes, of course, everything goes to Wittgenstein. That's not the problem. Now we're trying to figure out what being is. (laughs) Why we feel so comfortable with it. There's not one of you that doubts that being is. Do you doubt that? No, because it either being is or it isn't, and it doesn't seem to not be, so. <laughs> That's a good point. Being doesn't seem to not be. What are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, what would it be like to, for something to seem to not be? <laughs> would that be like the decimal expansion of pi? It just seems not to be? Hmm. How can we talk about the decimal expansion of pi, or the last number in the decimal expansion of pi, if it isn't? You probably did that when you were in 10th grade, you know, some wicked student had to do the long division for pi, and you eventually found out that it goes on forever because it's an irrational number. Go ahead, play with me, Herman. <laughs> Agree that yes, you took 10th grade geometry, and yes, you know that the decimal expansion of pi goes on forever. Okay, so then the last number of the decimal expansion of pi doesn't exist. So it doesn't, so it isn't. But you told me that nothing isn't. When, second ago, we were pretty happy with the idea that everything is. As attributes and interesting stuff like that, you know? Everything that exists is, but things that don't exist are not. Oh, okay. Well, that solves the problem, doesn't it? Let's say that the last number of pi does not exist. Yeah. So we can't speak about it existing simply because it doesn't. But we can speak about the number of pi that do exist simply because it exists. So that's not being able to speak about Okay, so I can't talk about the last number of the decimal expansion of pi. I thought this is what I was doing for the last few minutes. Weren't you speaking about it theoretically? You can talk about the idea. I don't know how to speak about something theoretically. My my thinking isn't that complicated yet. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say, look, I'm thinking about this theoretically so I can talk about it even though it isn't. What kind of things aren't? We don't know. You don't? So you don't know about the decimal expansion of pi? Not the last number. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know the last number isn't an integer? Can you not know that? You can't not know that. <laughs> this is getting really interesting. You can't not know that the last decimal number in the decimal expansion of pi is an integer. I'm sorry, it's starting to overload my circuits. I'm not sure if you can, yeah. But if there is no, if it goes on forever, then there could <clears throat> What it are we talking about? Just things get hairy. Say what? Before things get hairy, could you mean what, when you say it goes on forever, what it are we talking about? All right. If the uh, decimal number of pi. Decimal on, expansion of pi. Decimal expansion goes on forever, mm-hmm. then there is no last number to it. Okay. So then how do I talk about the decimal expansion of pi? Or the last number in the decimal expansion of pi since it isn't? Because you can imagine things that don't exist. 
Oh, okay. And do imaginary things exist? They exist in your imagination, oh. but not in reality. Oh, well, what do you mean by reality? Stuff you can touch, stuff you can see. So you're an atheist? <laughs> no. Oh. Then you probably think that stuff you can't touch is real. So you don't want to this is your health. You know, I think your way through this. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Miss. Oh, okay. Well, you, you owe me an idea. Yeah. Yes. Could have been to described as not existing, still sort of existing as our concept? Like a universe. Okay, like a universe. It doesn't, we describe it as something that doesn't exist, but this is so Well, I didn't ask you about existence. I asked you about being. You, you substitute that because no, Okay, so um, are unicorns? Or just like anything that, you know. Isn't. Put in like. <laughs> 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 and you can't see Yeah. Could things that like are only existing in our imaginations technically have an existence as a theoretical concept? Yes. Okay, I, I don't know. Um, if I think, for example, theoretically that seven is the last integer in the decimal expansion of pi, um, does that make it so? Well, so that it isn't. Okay, so then all this business about existing theoretically where we talk about them but don't think they are, where does that lead us? To a conjecture. To a conjecture. What are we conjecturing about? Unicorns, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, a couple of you don't seem sufficiently baffled. Um, do you think being is, yeah? Uh, well, I was just going to say, in regards to the decimal of pi, isn't the entirety of like a mathematical system, in a way, um, it's a deductive system? Yeah, so mathematics said, is deduction. Right, so we said the parameters are itself, and Two of those chairs with two of those other chairs, we have four of them. That's not in my mind, that's out there. True. I, I mean, like, the, I don't know, there are certain deductive things in math that you can get through in your head that aren't necessarily um, expressed in the world as far as I know. Okay. There's things like the square root of negative one, which you never find an instantiation of in the world. Okay, so uh, we're going to try and figure out whether that is, too. Well, perhaps everything is becoming. Have you given that any thought? You probably noticed things have been changing. Um, the seasons, politics, your reading list. <laughs> or lots of things change. All right. um, how is it possible for things to change and be what they are? I would think that if I had a thing, let us call it T, that when T changes, it isn't the way it used to be. I 
Oh, what are you nodding? <laughs> that sounds about right to me. Okay. So, um, things are and are also becoming. And are they doing both again? Right. And wouldn't there be some base essence of tea that would keep it tea? Even an essence of tea. An interesting idea. You are the child of Plato. Right. No, you don't realize it, but Plato has got you under his spell. Uh, we'll look around for an essence of tea. Um, how do you know there's an essence of tea? For example, consider things like alligators. What is the essential alligator? Is there such a thing, and what would that be like? If I were to say, look outside, there's a three-legged alligator, um, would that be an alligator? So alligators have three legs. Oh, good, okay. And some of them have tails, and some of them don't. And some of these are the great big lizards, and some of them aren't. I think in the nature of alligators, it be a great big Oh, but it doesn't have to have a tail or legs. No. Okay. Okay, so what's the essence of an alligator? DNA. DNA, excellent, yeah. Um, I have DNA. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, alligator DNA, of course, yeah. And of course, alligator DNA differs because it's a long, I mean, billions of base pairs, and they vary. So is there one particular set of DNA that is alligatorosity, and the rest of them are kind of, kind of demi-alligators? Okay, neither do I, actually. Uh, I don't think the problem here is cell biology. <laughs> I think the problem is figuring out what things have essences and why you would believe that. Some things probably do have essences. That seems plausible. Um, what's the, uh, I don't know, what's the essence of the World Series? Baseball. Maybe. To be the best team. What? To be like the best team. Unless it's the 1919 World Series. <laughs> that was one that was fixed and they threw the game <laughs> yeah organized crime it's the 20s <laughs> mm. alright so we're uh, we're not making all that much progress on being and we're still not getting very far in becoming why would anybody spend their time thinking about this if they figured it out it would be the most louder because if they figured it out it would be the most important thing and like the basis for everything. most important thing wow I would have thought the most important thing was stuff like food but turns out the most important thing is being and becoming that's because food is being food is being <laughs> part of being it's part of being so being is a whole and it has parts Me neither. <laughs> yes? Um, I would say that people ponder this question simply for like the delight of comprehending them. Okay. Um, yeah, it's human perversity. There's something to this. <laughs> right, you are. Um, we want to know stuff. But when we ask questions like, what is being, what is it that we want to know? In other words, if I asked you for an apple, you know what I would want and what would satisfy that request. If I ask you what is being, 
Um, what am I asking for? Ah. What qualities do all things share? What qualities do all things share? That's very nice. I like that. What quality do all things share? Have you examined all things? Do they all share being? We all share being. And that would be because being is a quality we all share. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all right. Now we're, we're moving on. We all share being, and being is something we all share. Okay. And so what is it that we all share? Being. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, what is it I share with Alpha Centauri? I mean, apparently it's being. Um, I don't feel or look very much like Alpha Centauri. I'm actually considerably closer as well. And yet, I share being with being must be very large. Hmm. Okay. Let's just put down all trace of discussion. That's a good sign. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're talking about, today, and neither do I. <laughs> all right. We have managed to back ourselves into a corner, and who knows how to get out of this thing. Let's look at some other things. I mean, let's, let's go away from being and becoming, because that may be a bit too hard to start out with. Let's start out with all is water. Now, how many of you think everything is water? Well, if not, why not? The aliens think so. 580 BC. Why do I need to know that all is water, and what does it mean that all is water? I mean, in looking around in my office and here in this classroom and stuff, I see a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't seem to be water. Okay, so why is that written down and handed down for 100 generations, um, since it is so silly? All this water, yeah. Um, because it's just a summertime to get to the origin of all being. Oh, okay, so now we're trying to get to the origin of being. Um, in addition to an origin, does it have a destination? Is it going somewhere? What would it be like to have an origin of being? What does it do when it originates? Yeah. If all is water, water would be something we all share, which would seem to be having something in common, common with being, as we discussed it. Oh, okay. So, we all share being, and water is everything. So water is being. And the ocean is a big reservoir of beef. <laughs> well, there we go. All right, moving right along. Um, <laughs> what do we know now we didn't know before? <laughs> yeah, it's fun kind of being stuck in the mental mud and being unable to move. You know, you, you step on the gas and nothing happens. It just rolls around. And all is water, except if Anaximenes is right, all is air. Why is it an advance to think that everything is air rather than everything is water, rather than everything is being? Statements that begin, everything is dot, 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 and we attach some predicate to it. How do you go about finding out about everything? What do you know about everything? That's a good question. What we 
over here we used to know it was, but now not, we don't apparently. Being, water, air, we are going nowhere fast, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know that it exists how? Santa Claus exists in my mind. Okay. So Santa Claus exists. Okay. So uh, Santa Claus is one of the things I know exists and things that are tangible I know exist. Uh, how about the largest integer? I've been thinking about the largest integer lately. Does that exist? Well, it's in my mind, like Santa. Santa gets lonesome without the largest integer. <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like in your mind? it look like? It doesn't look like anything, because it's not, not something I bounce photons off. <laughs> oh, now I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I went from being to nothing. I mean, the short speed is like three minutes. And there used to be things in my mind, but now it's not so clear, yeah. But couldn't it not? Well, if, what it do you, are you referring to? Sorry, the largest integer. Yeah. If something, as you said, Square root of negative one exist. No. Oh, that's awful because I, I was told that the square root of negative one equals the square root of negative one, and I took that to be a mathematical fact. And now I find that even it doesn't even exist, much less is it anything else or even itself. So everything that we think exists. As a thought, but not everything we think of What does it do when it exists as a thought, as opposed to the other kind of existence? I don't know if I'd say it exists as a thought. OK. A thought exists. A thought exists. But not the type of a thought, but it's a thought. What does it do when it exists? The thought is thinking out? <laughs> oh, my God. language for, for things like this. I mean, I can t just pick random words off of a dictionary page and make a sentence that makes no sense. And, mm -hmm. uh, just because the syntax is there doesn't 
does that mean, I guess, can we have a meaningless sentence that resembles a sentence with meaning? Can we have a meaningless sentence that resembles a sentence, a sentence with meaning? Um, I might think so. I'm not really sure. Um, why does a sentence that follows the ordinary syntax of English, um, why doesn't that have any meaning? If I were to say something like, the cat is on the mat, um, I just pulled those words randomly. Um, does that not mean anything? seems to have meaning, but the cat nor potatoes, without the broader context, we just select random words. They're random words, things. right, um, are random and don't convey any meaning unless, of course, they happen to fit the syntax that's relevant to that uh, language, in which case it would mean whatever the syntax indicates that it means. I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is, are these um, confounding and, and seemingly paradoxical questions made possible by language? Ah, well, it's hard to know. I mean, if you were to take language away, um, communication would be much more difficult. We could all hold hands and have a seance, and you could try and read my mind, but that's the slow way of finding out about the pre-Socratics. <laughs> <laughs> the faster, more effective way would be to talk about them. So think about it this way. In a way, swimming is pushing water out of the way. And you might think that swimming would be easier without the water, but it's not. In language, we employ words the way we employ water when we swim. Um, you kind of push it out of the way to get where you're going, but um, land swimming is much harder. And nonverbal communication, I could do a kind of a, an interpretive dance up here <laughs> about the Parmenides. But I'm not sure you learn that much about that. You're right, it has something to do with language, but it's hard to know exactly what. Right, but if, if language can, can, if you will, fall short of meaning mm. and just be a collection of sounds, can it also overshoot? Okay, so now we're, we're, we're spatializing meaning. And we can go too far and not far enough. Too far and not far enough in what or of what? Yeah, but yeah. Um, when we first started this discussion, we were talking about what is being, and we established that um, being is what all is what all things share. Mm -hmm. um, is that the only thing we know about it? Mm -hmm. um, it would seem you would have to know all things in order to know being. So all we seem to come to is that the human mind doesn't have the capacity to know all things. Therefore, we cannot know truly what. That's a very interesting thought. We can't know what being is. Why do we keep dropping that verb then in our sentences since we don't know what it is? And I assume that we don't know the things that we attribute it to be. I said before that the cat was on the mat. Should I have said the cat, the mat, or the cat on the mat? Or do I have to know all things before I can find out that the cat is on the mat? No, I'm saying that we need to know particulars. Good. But we can't know the thing, the one thing that all particulars share without knowing all things. Okay. That's very interesting. That's an interesting argument. Okay. 
So being is what all things share, and we can't know what being is until we know all things, but that leaves us we uncertain with how I know that all things share. So you can know that something exists without knowing what it is. Okay. Once I know that this uh, unknown thing is, what do I know about it? That it's unknown. Okay. So the unknown thing isn't known, and it has the property of being, property of being, which it shares with all other things. All right. Then, in what sense is it unknown? I mean, you seem to know something about it, which is that it all shares this being. Think of it another way. Um, suppose somebody wanted to share your soft drink. I kind of understand what that share would involve. What do we do when you share being? What's that like? I mean, I know what it is to uh, share an idea or share a table. Um, what do we do when we share being? come back when we try and figure out what participating in a form is. Yeah, any here? You all seem baffled. We're not, yeah, go ahead. That's brave. What did you say? What? I didn't hear what you said. That was brave. Good for you. Into the breach. Might be entirely wrong, but. Well, that's um, your job. (laughs) I'm very good at it. Good for you. (laughs) You're doing admirably well. You all are. No, look, the job of undergraduates is not knowing stuff. That's your job. You're doing great. Now, what is it you don't know? So you and I share humanity, and you and I share being. And I imagine that the fact that we share humanity means that we have some quality or set of qualities which is characteristic of being a human. Okay. What's the quality or set of qualities that's involved in being that we share? Existence. Existence. There we go. All right. Um, Since existence is being, finding out that when we share being, we also share existence starts out slow and then tapers off. Yeah. There's a, a lack of contrast, right? Because I, we can point to a lot of things that, that be or that, that seem to participate or, or possess being. But I, I couldn't say that I could point to you something that truly in no form or fashion is. So we can't I guess I can't figure out what the distinction would be that well, between being and non-being, I would think. Right. And as soon as we know what being is, we'll know what not being is. We're all set. Right, but if, you, if one, one stares into a, a bright light without, without some shadows, you can't see anything. You cannot distinguish mm-hmm. or, or identify. Okay. 
And uh, do you think that talking about being is like staring into a bright light? If we have no contrast, um, mm, it seems okay. to resemble it. Well, I would imagine that if you can't contrast it, then being isn't. Existence is much less being. So we'd have the same conversation about existence. Well, I don't know what there is to say about existence. I, on the whole, don't all say all that much is about it. Existence to be in or not to be. Oh, uh, now we get hammered. Uh, you exist, you are. Oh. If you don't exist, you aren't. Okay. Or is that simply strictly using using being as a verb, and maybe maybe that's trivializing it a little bit too much? Oh. So we shouldn't use being as a verb, we should prefer it as a noun, as a Well, thing. I'm asking that, because if it's a verb, then, then if it is a verb, then being is equal to existence, because it's existence is to be or not to be. Okay, exist, but know. if you don't know what either being or existence is, you can't inform yourself about what the other is. To say that X is Y and Y is Z, we can then if we want say Z is A, we can dance around the circle, but until we find out what one of those things is, we can't identify any of them. Yeah. So we if, talk about not being, we give it an attribute. Right. Being. Okay. So we don't know what being or not being is? Is that the idea? Well, we can recognize being, but we can't talk about it super well because we don't know what its opposite is. Hmm. Okay, so colors don't exist. Is that correct or incorrect? I'm just trying to follow they you. Don't, they don't have existence in themselves. They, they don't have it in themselves. But they're also not nothing, so. Okay. So colors are not nothing. Are there other things that are not nothing or just colors? So now we have being, non-being, becoming, plus the great unknown. 
know, this is like the old, those old maps where it says, here be monsters, <laughs> but who knows what's there. So we got being, we don't know what that is. We got not being, and we know that it's not whatever that is, but we don't know what it is. We have becoming, which comes from Heraclitus and sees it seems to be a problem, and then we have the great unknown. So we don't know the great unknown, and we don't know any of the three smaller unknowns. Mm. I'm starting to feel lonesome, kind of an absence of things in the world. But you're right, maybe there's a, maybe there's not, not a dichotomy between being and not being. What would be in the middle, and what would that, what does that stuff do? All right, here's the problem. We're trying to ask questions about asking questions. Right? We're trying to think using language, but language commits us to certain structures. These structures are called grammar. Right? You will find in Indo-European languages like the one we're speaking now, English, that being is used to connect subjects and predicates. So if one of you had said being is a verb, I think you probably would have gotten it right. The question is, what does the verb refer to? And that is much more ambiguous. Other verbs, like climbing or walking or throwing, it's not hard to figure out what they refer to. But this particular verb is very, is very different. It's very strange. It doesn't seem to involve a predicate at all. In other words, when you say that X is, all right, um, it doesn't seem that whatever you're going to attach as the predicate is going to be a product of the, res of the idea that being is. Let's bracket being for now. Let's talk about change. And you notice that things change? How does that work? Yeah. Things may change their shape, yeah. Um, they may change their color. They may change their size. There are lots of, in other words, for all the adjectives that we have, for all the qualities we can think of, those qualities may change. Okay. If things change, all right, how can they ever be the same? How can they ever be what they are? In other words, if snow turns into water, which evaporates and turns into air or humidity in the air. Um, in what sense does is water, since it's undergoing these changes? It retains the same chemical makeup. Okay, same chemical makeup. Fair enough. Um, of course, this chemical makeup is transformed by these physical changes. So yes, water is still H two O. But as steam or as ice, it has very different properties. All right. How can the same thing have different properties? Yeah. Um, well, I look brave. Okay, let's, that's okay. You look brave. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. Wouldn't that just be like saying that all is water then, or like all is air? Yeah, it's certainly going to be related to it. Here's the big deal. When we read Homer, we read what I call Science 1.0. It's the original account of the natural world. Spooks and spirits, 
things that go bump in the night, animate the world around us in the 1.0 view. All right? That was back when, for example, the Egyptians used to have a little ceremony every spring where they would invite the Nile River to come and overflow the land, bring us that topsoil we needed. And if you do it at the right time of the spring, because the priests have a calendar at this point, they're actually able to do the ceremony, and then the Nile, being as good natured as it is, overflows the land. You've got to like that. Now, later on, after you've gotten five or six weeks of that, then you want to go and ask the Nile if it would please go back where it was, because we have the topsoil and now we have some work to do. And if you do that ceremony at the right time of the year, um, it does. And that's a really great thing for the Nile to be doing. The first version, what they're trying to, what these priests are trying to do is to manipulate nature. In the archaic world, magic is the first kind of technology. In other words, it's employing their best understanding of nature to push nature around and get it to do the stuff they want it to do. Back then, if you get sick, say you get malaria, the witch doctor comes down and he views the sick person and he announces that sickness is about is supposed to leave because he is chasing it out. He will shake the magic rattle. He will sing a song about malaria. He will invoke the spirits of malaria and then you will die because that doesn't cure malaria. <laughs> right, now that, that's the downside of that. The upside of it is this. Um, the witch doctor shaking the magic rattle and throwing fairy dust and singing songs at your disease, that has a very high placebo result. In other words, to a great extent, you'll find it out, doctors today all know that if they, you believe that you're getting a treatment, uh, your chances of, of being cured increase dramatically because there's a psychosomatic reaction. There's that. Plus, some of you were, so, were sick, but not so sick you were going to die, you would have survived anyway. And that also gets attributed to the witch doctor. Okay. Science 1.0 is the default that everybody runs. In other words, any society that hasn't undergone one or more scientific revolutions believes that the world around us, the natural world, is full of spooks and spirits and things you can talk to, and things that like you and don't like you. Disease spirit does not like you. Whereas the spirit of fresh food, fresh meat, that really does like you, it loves you. And then remember the bison spirit, if you killed a bison, probably that really likes you people, and you could be the bison people. Right? You can put on a bison headdress and dance around and probably get all totemic about that. Okay, what we're studying here is the world's first scientific revolution. That's what Milesian physics is. Yeah? Is someone going to present on this? They are. Who's going to, who's going to go, all right, go, give us the physics.
but the original Ben Sister, um, Thales, and X Manor, and then Annex Simonies, the author of this book, anyways, attributed the revolution of that place um, to one, it being open to a lot of trade and near a lot of developed and different societies, like the different river valley civilizations, so like Mesopotamia and Egypt and like all the other, other things on the Mesopotamia with all, lots of different beliefs and everything. Um, plus, this place in Greece um, was wealthy, so people could think about it, had time to do that. So just as why they thought about it and no one else did. Um, that's one explanation, I guess. Um, but yeah, so the first bunch of guys, um, like Dr. Suguru was saying, are trying to give a rational, um, naturalistic, scientific explanation for things that had previously been explained by myths.
things. Um, and that was kind of like a, a universal principle per se, but it, it wasn't based on like one shared, um, what's the word? Um, like a set of beliefs, like the next. So it was kind of like his, his opinion, um, which isn't very, doesn't stand out very well to other people's opinions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so those are for the first three. Um, and then we have Xenophanes. 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 Um, and this guy was kind of like the first three, by giving scientific explanations for everything, had undermined the Homeric myths, but this guy was like straight up attacking them. Um, and just very skeptical. Um, also had a naturalistic view of the world. Um, um, and he's, his effect wasn't super widespread. It wasn't very like philosophical or abstract. Um, and he didn't give a very scientific account of the world. But um, something the guy said, um, he definitely, he points out that we can't have a, rel a reliable knowledge about the gods. So like, if we can't see them, then we can't really know them. So like, um, what you see is what you get, I guess. Um, and then we get to the two big guys um, with Heraclitus and Parmenides. And at first I was really confused because when I got Heraclitus, he was talking about like the logos and everything. I was like, oh, this is like more like Plato, I guess. But like it's not actually, it's really very different from Plato um, because he's the one who talks about um, things always changing. Um, there, he says there, there is a truth, but it's beyond human comprehension. So that was kind of interesting. That's why I thought he was like Plato because he was talking about there was being a truth. But like then he said that you can't really know it. That's not very. I know where you go with that. Um, he he did kind of recognize. He wanted to. He saw the world as comprehensible. It wasn't just like a chaotic, chaotic thing. Um, so that was a, a good step in the right direction, as far as I'm aware, for human civilization. Um, but so he he saw like the human person as a microcosm of like the universe. Um, and he especially focused on the changing stuff, so like life and death, um, paradox in the world, um, like how everything's changing. I think he's the one with the river quote uh, about like you can't step in the same river twice if you guys ever seen Pocahontas. You can't step in the same river twice. Just a weird gesture, anti-punic. The problem is that if you think about it, you realize that what that's going to lead you to is the idea that you can't step in the same river once.
cannot, okay, so this is what he says. We cannot think of or know an attributeless entity. Um, so everything that we do know has attributes. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I got from that. Um, and that's, this, is, this was really hard to understand what he was saying because it had a lot of verb to be in it um, over and over again, which is a little hard to un, untangle. Um, but yeah, so basically everything is one. But that's beyond the natural world. Um, so that like includes things that can be thought of and have attributes, which includes like things in our mind, um, not just like things that are made out of water. If you're Thales, um, if all is one, um, how can we have such a mind and all attributes? Does that seem to be two things? How can we have a mind? Well, and, and at the same time have amenities same time have the book that you read since they're all the same thing because they're all one. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thought to say that everything is one. You just really want everything is one. Mm -hmm. well, go ahead. Um, yeah, so he, he got this idea set of gap closures, which can allow 
Achilles to catch the tortoise. So what that means is, is that motion makes no sense. <laughs> In other words, the idea is what Parmenides is saying is, look, you think the world around you is reliable, you think your sense perceptions are reliable. Well, here's the deal. Um, as a matter of logical fact, it is impossible for Achilles to catch the tortoise. And yet we see Achilles catch the tortoise all the time. What that means is not that I was wrong in saying that this, it doesn't make any logical sense. What that means is that the world of space and time and matter, the world that you can see and think about, none of it's real. Because only the one is real. And since only the one is real, you're not real and I'm not real and Parmenides is not real. Only the one is real. Because we're all part of that one. But the one doesn't have any parts. It's just one of them. That's what makes it one. Is that clear? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Right, so Zeno kind of basically throws out the sense for logic and is like, logic's clearly more persuasive for him, I guess. Um, so we shouldn't worry about it. Actually, it goes the other way. What he says is the logic is real. And if your senses tell you differently, then your senses are wrong. No, that, you know, that's, that's, the pro- uh, that's one of the problems. Parmenides is a guy who seems to have invented or discovered, depending on how you look at it. Logic. And he says, look, logic is logic, regardless of what you see and what the world tells you. And if the conflict between logic and the work and your sense perception, your sense perception is wrong. Okay. So all the stuff around you, the booming, buzzing, confusion, all the motion and change and transformation, none of that's real. So relax. All the stuff you're worried about, none of it's real. And by the way, um, you are not separate from Parmenides because you aren't real either. Because none of these separate things that are separate from the one exist. Because they are. Right. Which is, I mean, it's pretty cool. Right. It's pretty cool to think about, especially when you consider, like, how he, I don't know, however many years earlier, like, people were all, like, you know, Science 1.0 people, and suddenly we have people telling us that. So early on, I feel like it's cool how fast this developed. Yes. Um, and that, like, suddenly someone's telling us that logic is, you know, more persuasive than, than the material world. And if logic's telling you something that contradicts the material world, then you should go with the logic to the material world. Whereas before, there was like, I mean, no one, I, it seemed to me that no one was thinking nearly along these lines or like in this. But this argument doesn't exist separate from the one either. <laughs> <laughs> So if it's right, it isn't. And if it isn't right, it isn't right. I can see how this would right kind on. of be cool for the Athenians and it would be, I, I wouldn't be able to argue against it, but it's obviously. Um, but anyway, so yeah, then we had, after Zeno, we had Melissus, I think that's how you say his name. Don't worry about him. Okay. <laughs> um, and then we had Pythagoras, yeah. um, which is pretty cool. And yeah, at first I wasn't sure what group to put him in um, in terms of naturalist or not. I think not. Um, but I don't. He talks about math as like you know the theology of arithmetic and how you see math in all of the material world. Um, and like you know the ha- the hammer thing, um, the music is reflected in math, and like math is everything. And um, so. Then air, and now math is different. Okay. One of the yeah. worst things I 
things have in common. They're all for one. Same diameter, or are they different diameters? 
split the, the cone in two and form two circles. So are they the same or are they different? You look like they're different. They're different, that's possible. Um, okay, let's assume that these are two different sizes. These are two different sizes. Right? Then, no matter, then I'm going to put it back together, and now I'm going to cut the I'm going to cut the cone again. But this time, I'm going to put circle C on the bottom of the pointy part. I'm going to cut a, a very thin pancake underneath. Right. So now B is gone. Now we put C up on the bottom of the pointy part, and now I have a new circle D on the base part. Now if B is equal to C. Is C equal to B? Is, is C equal to D? Our new circle? Well, I think it's not. Okay, so they're not. So as we do this, we get different size slices. All right, if that's true then, if you put them back together and then you look at the side of a cone, you'll find that it's not a straight line. This is all these funny little terraces doing this. Okay, but that's not what a cone is. Cone isn't made of all those little terraces. In fact, there's a continuous straight line. But you told me that circle B and circle C and circle D are all different sizes. Okay, so that must mean that there's some difference between D and C and C and D. Okay, so then what about the little terraces you're now creating on the side of a cone? Yeah. We ask about circles. In other words, if these are different size circles, then the side of a cone is not a straight line. The side of a cone is these perpendicular 90 degree jumps, and there's an infinite number of them. So when you move up the side of a cone, what you're doing is the cha cha as you do this. You don't have a straight line. But that's not the way what we meant by a cone to begin with. So maybe the alternative is better. Maybe they're all the same size. So we look at B, and we say B is the same as C. And then I cut it again, I put C up on the top. And then I look at D, and D is the same. And I can make E, F, G, H. I can keep on slicing all the way down. What that means is that every cylinder, every cone, no matter how many slices you make, up or down, the, the circles are always the same size. And what that proves is that all cones are cylinders. Hmm. Now, if you make your first cut at the very point at the top, then it never gets any bigger than a point. So that means all, so all cones are straight lines. Okay, I still don't see how this is a problem because if you make another cut below the first one, right. even if it's like infinitely small, it's yeah. still an infinitely small change. So there we go. There will be a change in your diameter. So you, need, so you, need, look, so you need all an infinite number of bumps in a straight line. It could, I mean, it's still a straight line if it's Bump. a slight change. Is that what we mean by a straight line? Uh, a line that has a bunch of bumpy, slight changes? I, as you move I along? just don't understand why moving down the line necessarily means that you have steps. Well, I'm looking at the side of a cone. Imagine a, a, a geometrical cone. Um, it looks to me like the two sides that move up to the point, they look to me like straight lines. Straight lines do not have a little jagged 
bunch of jumps, an infinite number of them, stuff you made by a straight line. So that's the problem. So here's the problem. Now, we look at those circles, B and C, and if we say that they're the same, then all cones are cylinders. If we don't say that they're the same, then the side of a cone is not a straight line. have B and C, the pointy set, the bottom of the pointy point, that surface is First B. One, yeah, yeah. The, the base smaller circle is, is B. Now what I'm going to do is cut it, is put them back together and then cut it again so that C is now on the base of the pointy one. Alright, so now we have D, uh, uh, another circle, on the top of the uh, base. Mm -hmm. So my point is either that, A, that circles B, C, and E, and D are either equal or unequal. If they are equal, then it never gets any bigger or any smaller than exactly the place where you make the first cut. It's a cylinder. On the other hand, if they're different, what that means is that the side of the cone isn't a straight line. It's these series of jagged moves up and down. Would it be easier if somebody drew this out on the board? Because I think I see what you're saying. And sure. Illustrating. Yeah. No. yeah. What? Okay. Well, um, the way we defined a cone was that if you dropped a, a line through the point and through the center of the circle at the bottom, that you could rotate that 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 uh, that cone, and that the sides would not change. And the size would be one continuous straight line. A continuous straight line is not a series of steps going up and down. You can, yeah, knock yourself out. Go ahead, put it over there. Yeah. It's a problem once you cut it, you don't have a cone anymore? Well, no, certainly it is a cone. Because when you cut a cone uh, perpendicular to the bottom, and the bottom is a circle, that yeah. means the way you cut it is a circle. And what you have left over there, on the top is a cone, and on the bottom is a piece of a cone. Right. But with the bumping yeah. issue, with the lateral straight line, yeah. I mean, it's not still that cone anymore. Oh. It's, cut, it's cut apart. So then the cone doesn't remain itself when you cut it? Yeah. Mm, that's an interesting idea. Imagine then, uh, say, cutting a slice out of a, out of a circle. They were like a wedge of pie. Um, it stops being a circle then. Yeah. And uh, what does it turn into? A piece of pie. Okay. Then you have two pieces of pie, but not an entire pie. The one thing that was is not there. Well, if I have the two parts of a cone, and I haven't lost anything in the form of sawdust when I cut it, how can it be anything but what it was before I cut it? What it was was, was uh, it in its wholeness. It can't. What do you mean he, in its wholeness? I mean, I kind of lost what I was saying. I don't know what I mean, but it can't be the same thing that it was before. It's in two pieces now. Okay. In certain ways, it can't be. Well, I mean, that was going to make all of Euclidean geometry impossible because cutting things apart without losing any of the anything in the current is what Euclidean geometry does when it analyzes things like triangles. Mm -hmm. So 
when I have a triangle, if I do something to it, uh, some, some uh, geometrical modification or thought about it, it, the triangle stops being a triangle? No, I mean, I mean it just stops being It seems to me then that what we, what we end up with there is that mathematics becomes a positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I don't Maybe going off what she was saying, I think that it becomes lesser than what it was, but still retains the basic essence of the thing, but it is not the same thing. What is a basic essence that is not? Like, so if you have a cone and then you cut it in half, and so it's like two smaller cones, right. as you're saying, to a base of a Right. Um, it is at its truest form a cone, but it is not truest form? Not truest form. It's like, how do I want to say this? But it's like, it's still a cone, but it's not the cone that it was. Cutting something in two pieces, um, how it stops being that hole that is split into pieces. You lose something in the hole, so it's solid. But by in geometry, you see that's not the case. Yeah. Okay, so the cones don't exist now. Wow, that's going to get in the way of what we were trying, or what we assumed we were trying to put this together. And the cones don't exist. There's no argument to have. Well, that would make us a problem. You know, we previously had a Euclidean cone, which wasn't a problem at all. Now we know they don't exist, and the mathematics doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I guess I have two questions. If you cut a cone like this, you have a cone, and then you have something that is not a cone. It's the base of the cone, yeah. Yes, but you can't. Are A and B equal to each other? Right, it's a portion. It's a portion. But also, if you cut the cone. But if they aren't, then it. If they, if they are equal to each other. Like, I get what you're describing. I'm not going to explain this. But if A is equal to B, C can still be equal to B without A. So A and B should be able to fit right on top of each other. So they are equal to each other. So every A and B throughout the cylinder should be equal to each other. Which is even similar. If they're not equal to each other, then what you have is a function of terraces. A series of terraces. But then you no longer have a cone. If they're on the side, then the cone has a straight line. Right? Yeah. 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 And being a series, you move towards the side. That's what it means to be a But the problem is that A and B then equal each other, right? Then A and B equal each other, right? All right, let's see if we can get it. All right, have you got that? You got the cone there? Is this what you're saying? All right. You see our cone problem there? All right, yeah. What if it's straight line? What if it's not a straight line? What if it's curved? If it's a curve, then it's not a cone, because that's not how we define cone. It has to have a straight line on the side for it to be a cone. All right, here's the deal. The Greeks are too smart for their own good. All right, they generate problems that are completely insoluble. This is not soluble until you develop calculus. Then you're going to get the idea of the infinitesimal. And that infinitesimal increase will allow you to plug and chug and work with those changes. All right? So 
until you get the idea of the infinitesimal, and we're a long way from that, um, the Greeks are better at thinking of problems than they are at solving problems. And that's part of what's wrong with the Greeks. The Greeks are too smart for their own good. Go ahead, finish up. Anaxagoras, yeah. Anaxagoras, okay. Um, and he is, after going to Parmenides and Pythagoras, he's like back to the naturalist view. So um, he's definitely like really scientific, um, atheistic almost, um, where he gives really naturalistic explanations mm -hmm. for even like creation itself. So, like, I know, he, I mean, who can really explain something coming from nothing? No one. So he just says, there has to be something. There has always been something. There's like an infinite smallness. There can be multiple worlds within our world if they're small enough. I don't know. It's all this like kind of crazy stuff. Um, yeah. And then, but he does recognize this distinctness between mind and material. Okay. Um, which is kind of picked up by the atomists later, in that they say there's like a fiery atom that's like your soul atom that's like combined with the material atoms in every atom that you have. So it, in it's kind of nice because that means that even if you get your hand cut off, none of your soul is missing for sakes. You still have all of your soul for all the atoms that you have. Um, but, which is, I think, better than the hypothalamus thing that you talked about later. It's at least a little more. Um, it works more nicely than that does. Um, but anyway, so that's what I had for an Exactus. Um, just a very naturalistic, kind of more developed than the original guy's um, approach to the natural world. Um, Empedocles is pretty similar. Um, he has, there's this quote, it says, a judicious use of the sense combined with the proper use of intelligence can teach one the truth about morals. Um, which basically saying that human knowledge, um, yeah, can understand the truth. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty naturalistic. Um, and he also comes up with the original elements of like um, earth, air, fire, water, um, and that everything else is just a combination of these. Um, he also talks about like love and strife being another two um, forces that kind of affect change um, and that like combine to create things. Um, and he believes in reincarnation. Um, but I forget. I think this is the guy that um, there's like the story about his death is that he. He threw it, he threw himself into Mount Etna in the process of deifying himself. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, but that kind of like it's weird because it sticks with this like, oh, there are gods, but like actually they're only guys, so they're not really gods because there's reincarnation. So it kind of like you know eliminates the persuasiveness of the Americans to think that you might become a god. And that guy was a god because he jumped into a volcano. Um, obviously, I was persuasive anyway. Um, but then we have the atomist finish up. Oh, wait, no, we had one guy after this. Um, and this is really kind of cool. Here, yeah. Right, um, because it's it's actually pretty similar to what we understand now in that there, there must be these little tiny things, that there are an infinite number of them um, that make up every material thing in the universe. Um, they're not what they make up. They're their own thing. Um, and, oh, there's this idea of, like, the void and atoms. Mm -hmm. So this kind of, like, what I was thinking about Zeno, it's like how something can be moving because it goes through a lack of something to move. So it's not being in one place at the same time. 
actually kind of how it is with like, you know, there's like a bunch of space within the atoms that makes up. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and this is kind of like derived from Empedocles' ideas of like the original four elements making up everything in the combination and they just kind of like make it bigger and more. Um, I guess it kind of makes more sense scientifically. We'll see. Yeah. Science develops. But you did a good job with it. You know, a difficult topic. All right. Now here, let me see if I can break this down for you. All right. Starting at the beginning. All right. Good job. That was nice. Milesian physicists. Okay. These are the first guys to try and give an account of the world that doesn't have any divine, mythical, poetic, glow-in-the-dark, kind of woo, spooky stuff in it. In other words, everything is what it looks like it is. What you see is what you get. You don't need to go to a poet to invent some mumbo-jumbo for you in order to understand what the world is around you. Look at it and then see if it behaves according to various patterns and then start to talk about these patterns. All right? So, Bailey says all is water. What he means by that, he's trying to construct an idea that doesn't exist yet. The idea he's trying to discuss is called matter. But since that idea doesn't exist and the term doesn't exist, he's got to say, look, everything is water. Why? Water exists as a solid and a liquid and a gas. He's talking about the phases of matter. How is it that one thing, water, if you cool it down, turns into ice, and if you heat it up, turns into steam? That must be behind all the solids, liquids, and gases in the world. So, no mumbo-jumbo, no divine intervention, no poetic stuff to hide our ignorance. Instead, we're just going to say, look, the world is the modification of this stuff, the modification of what will eventually be known as matter. In other words, he's the first reductive naturalistic materialist. That's a big breakthrough. That's not an easy thing to do. In other words, he is skeptical of all poetic, mythological accounts of nature. And prior to this, Science 1.0 is exclusively made up of mythological, poetic accounts of nature. So here we're making a jump from Science 1.0 to Science 2.0. Science 2.0 rejects the mumbo-jumbo and the poetry and the stuff that glows in the dark and the woo spooky stuff that is believed to inhabit the world, and it just is what it is. Now his student, Anaximander, all right, that's our man, he's figured out that everything is the boundless because he also is trying to figure out something or trying to articulate something, an idea that doesn't exist yet. I think what he's talking about is space. In other words, try and think of something that's boundless, just keeps on going. Well, that's a very counterintuitive thing if you stop and think about it. All right? And yet, suppose you wanted to talk about space. What would you say? You know, space. How do you explain to somebody what space is? I mean, you all know, but if I asked you, well, what is space exactly? You'd say, it's the boundless. All right. And then we get the final of the three Milesian physicists, Anaximenes, all is air. He's concluded that there's some kind of substratum 
making up all the things that we experience in the natural world. And air is going, going to be his choice instead of water, because what he sees is an interesting process. You throw wood on a fire, the wood stops being wood. It burns, and then it turns into ash, and what it lets off is smoke. What Anaximander is saying is that smoke is wood stuff, the stuff that makes up wood, only it's spaced out more. In other words, it's become more rarefied. And if you go someplace where it's cold and watch it snow, you watch the opposite. You'll watch air turn into a solid that's also easily liquefied. And so you go the opposite direction. You go from air to liquid to solid. Right? Solid liquid to air. So the idea is that there's something underneath, a substratum of reality, underneath all the appearances we have. This substratum he calls air, but he also is working on an idea we don't have yet, which is matter. All right? Both of them are trying to say, among all the transformations and motions and different things that happens in the world, what is it we're looking at? Okay. What these guys are doing is chucking out the inherited tradition of Greek poetry, primarily Homer. So science begins with a criticism of poetic myth. All right. This is the world's first scientific revolution, and the argument I will make for the rest of the year is that every scientific revolution generates a corresponding revolution in the human sciences. In other words, when you think that when your understanding of what nature is changes, your understanding of what you are changes. You start asking different questions. Okay? Now, this quickly leads us in the direction of religious skepticism. And that's what our friend Xenophanes is good for. He said, remember, these guys are living on islands between Greece and Turkey. These are wealthy places. They have the intellectual inheritance of, the, uh, of Mesopotamia and Egypt. All right? And you also have the Mediterranean basin, which is uh, saleable. It's navigable at this time, given the technology that they have, which means there's going to be a whole bunch of people you're going to encounter. You're going to encounter different ideas, different religions, different uh, marketplaces, different economies, different political systems. You're going to have all kinds of, encounter with all kinds of different cultures. And at that point, you start asking questions about what you find. He said, I talked to some traders who were down in Ethiopia. He said, in Ethiopia, all the gods and all the idols they built, they all have black skin. And I went up to Thrace, and I did some trading there, and it turns out that all their gods and goddesses in Thrace have red hair. They said, hmm, do you think this is related to the fact that the people in Ethiopia have black skins and the people in Thrace have red hair? They said, hmm, hmm. makes you stop, I think. In other words, it would be quite a different thing if the gods of the Ethiopians had red hair and they'd never seen red hair, but that would be amazing. And if the Thracian gods had all had black skins, that would be amazing too. But that's not how it works. The Thracian gods look like Thracians. The Ethiopian gods look like Ethiopians. Hmm. And he said, you know, remember that Homer, the poems that we got as kids? Um, didn't all the Homeric gods and goddesses seem like Greeks? Hmm. They had Greek names. They spoke Greek. 
when we created pictures of statues of them, they looked like Greeks. Hmm. What if people just make up these mumbo-jumbo stories and place them and their, their people in these stories? In other words, what if these are all unreal? Hmm. So it looks like then what we have is grounds for asking new questions about religion and myth and poetry. All right? This is going to lead us to Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras is a great guy. He's living in a, in a universe that has now been devoid of magic, devoid of myth, devoid of poetry. So Anaxagoras says, you know, Homer tells us that the big light that goes across the sky during the daytime the sun. Homer tells us that that's Apollo's golden chariot. Any of you ever looked at the sun, or perhaps at a reflection of the sun in uh, uh, water, so you don't burn your corneas out? Well, here's the deal. That looked like Apollo's golden chariot to you. Did it look in any respect like a chariot? Char Granted, it was golden. Did you see Apollo? You see the horses? You see the chariot? No. How about this? What if the sun? is not Apollo's golden chariot. What if the sun is a hot rock? In other words, you've ever, thrown a, you've ever seen a big bonfire? Throw a rock in, it gets sufficiently hot so that it begins to glow when you throw it out? So that's what the sun looks like to me. It doesn't look like Apollo's golden chariot. It looks like a hot rock. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. The, the cat's out of the bag now. We're starting to ask some big questions. Okay, from there, we start to look at how language and logic and the external world are connected. We ask two, one basic question that can be split into two directions. How is it that things change? Because if you look around you, you will notice things changing. Now, these things that change, that's okay, but the question is, if they're changing, how can they be what they are? In other words, when water gets boiled and it turns into steam, right, how can it still be water? In other words, we see change in the world, and yet if we see only change, then nothing is what it is. Nothing is articulable or articulated. Nothing is separate. So tables, chairs, podiums, none of those seem to exist. They aren't because they're undergoing a process of transformation. They're becoming, they're not being. Think of throwing wood on a campfire. The wood, which was taken from a tree, uh, is now becoming smoke. How is it that something can be and yet become something else? This is not an easy logical problem. So Parmenides says, look, I'll solve this problem. We must think and say that being is. Okay. Still leaves me wondering how water turns into steam. But we'll, we'll investigate that in a second. The other alternative, the first guy, is Heraclitus. Heraclitus goes for becoming, for change, for transformation. Uh, negative delta 
in my lingo, it's what I put on the board. Uh, the triangle always means change or delta, and uh, negative delta means unchanging, it's being. Okay. Heraclitus says you can only step in the same river once. You can't step in the same river twice, right? Because if I go up to the river, and I put my foot in, it's, uh, it's what it is when I put my foot in, I take it out, then I go up to the river again, the river has changed. And since the river has changed, I can't put my foot in the same river twice. Of course, it also means that my foot has changed. So when I put it in the first time, it's my foot. When I put it in the second time, it's something, it's changed. And a thing that has changed is no longer what it used to be. So you can't put your foot in the same river twice. You can't put your foot in the same river once. You also can't put your foot in anything more than once because it keeps on changing. Yeah. No, I have uh, blood flowing through it, and I have AD, what, what is it, ADP, is that the energy of the cell? That's undergoing various chemical reactions, and these chemical reactions are temporal, happening continuously. So what my hand is now, and what my hand is now, two different things. Is that what you're adding to the argument, or what? Is that what? Is that something that you're adding on to the no, this is what Heraclitus believes. In other words, Heraclitus's argument is that everything is constantly changing. The world is flux and constant change. The question is, what is it that's undergoing this change? Remember, this, uh, this thing that's changing, that's undergoing this change, um, if it changes, then it's not what it used to be. So what is it to talk about? This is very, very close to what it used to be. Bridget said something earlier. What do you mean by close? Um, so earlier, Bridget said it's lesser than what it was, mm -hmm. or you could say it's different than what it was. Right. But it still contains the basic essence of what it was. Okay. So um, when I uh, when a fly is flying around and it lands on the thing and I sweat and I swat it. Okay. Um, I told me then that the fly had an essence and that. It had that essence when it was flying around, and then when I squash it, it still has that essence? Yeah. Okay. And what is the essence? I mean, what is that made of? The matter of the fly. Oh, okay. So then if I were to cut the fly in half and throw a portion of it in, say, uh, uh, the batter for cake, um, would the fly then still have the essence of fly, or would it take upon the essence of cake? And what are these essences you're talking the essences would be mixed. Okay, so what, are, what, what do you mean by an essence? What's that? It's the, uh, the parts of it that are in only one thing. So, let's say you take a, a molecules of coffee and you put those together, then you have coffee. Okay, so those molecules are the essence of coffee, and uh, the molecules of a fly. When you put them with a fly, then those are the essences of a fly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what would be the essence of say uh, integers? Those are uh, 
more conceptual than physical things. That's a, mm -hmm. sort of a different topic. Does it have an essence? Yeah. Okay. And the now, essence isn't physical. Okay. Um, let's try something like uh, let's try something like wood. I imagine a piece of wood contains the essence of wood. I throw it on a fire and it burns up, and then it turns into smoke and ash. Um, where's the essence now? It's been transformed into something else. Okay, then. Well, if it's been transformed, then how can it be an essence? So it used to be the essence, but it's not anymore. How do you know that it used to be the essence? Because I could see it with a piece of wood. Right, but you didn't see the essence, did you? No. Oh, okay. I mean, you could see the color of it. Right. Um, that could be an indication of the essence. Okay, so you can see the essence of wood. Yeah, you can see the essence of wood. What's it look like? Tan. Tan, okay. So, uh, I don't know. Other color wood, like ebony, would be essential. That would be essential of ebony wood. Oh, okay. Like a type of wood. There we go then. All right, so everything has its own essence. And for example, you have an essence now that you had the day you were born, when you're only an infant. Okay. And uh, that essence can change, apparently, right there? Yeah. Okay. And when it changes, what does it change into? more numerous because when you're an infant you have less amount of cells than when you're so your essence gets bigger along with you I don't know if I put it like that I know that's why I put it though <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll come back to this uh, believe me we're going to get haunted by essences oh, right. then we'll come back to essences um, See, when, when you were five and six years old when you were learning the English language, um, my sense is, is that probably no one said, this is the essence of wood, <laughs> due to the fact that that would be utterly unintelligible. Probably what they said is that this is wood, and this is wood, and this is wood, and this is wood, and then they pointed to a piece of wood and said, what's that? And if you said, it's an aardvark, then you don't understand what they're talking about. Whereas if you say wood, you say, wow, I know what wood is, even though no one's ever told me about it having an essence. And it doesn't seem like I need to know what the essence of wood is in order to be able to think about it and talk about it. So then it would make me wonder what the essence of wood is good for, since you don't need it to talk or think about wood. Can you say that again? <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> The, uh, the question is this, um, when you learn the English language, they don't tell you what the essence of wood is, they don't tell you what the essence of chair is, they don't tell you what the essence of book is, they just show you chairs and wood and books. And they point to them and say, that's a book, and that's wood, and that's a chair. Those being books and wood and chair. Um, so how is it that you managed to get by all those years until you came to the university and found out what the essence of wood I mean, I would have thought that you were using the word wood pretty solidly. 
another big pill understood what you were talking about, you understood what they were talking about. But you didn't need to invoke the essence of wood. So here's my question. How do you know wood has an essence and why should we believe that it has an essence? Okay, so there is a, a thing that we don't know. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. And we call, yes. And we call that thing an essence. Yes. Okay. Um, how is it that we can talk about it and make reference to it if we don't know it? For example, scientists look for things that they don't know about the material world. Um, they don't generally re describe it as essence. Why would you call uh, something you don't know an essence? I mean, what does it gain you? What's the point of that idea? What? Okay. Uh, give the pre-Socratics a break. What I've been doing is showing you how hard it is to deal with new, important ideas for which we don't even have words, all right? So, it is mysterious. On the one hand, you are the same person that came here last week, right, to this class? All right, and yet, you've changed your clothes and you've changed your location a number of times and you've performed a lot of activities. Here's my question, how is it that you can be the same person you are now, despite the fact that you have undergone changes compared to the person you were last week. Something seems to remain the same, and something seems to change. Here's my question. What is it that remains the same, and how do you find out about it? I mean, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that you're somebody new, that I get a new class every week. That's what Heraclitus wants me to believe. There's no, you cannot teach the same class twice. <laughs> Why? Because they're all different people and we're all changing constantly. On the other hand, Parmenides says, look, becoming makes no sense and change makes no sense. A thing can't be what it is and also change. You've got to make a decision. So he says, I'm choosing things being what they are. Actually, not things being what they are. Thing being what it is. Because there's only one thing. And that's being. Now that means that there's no such thing as Parmenides. And there's also no such thing as Parmenides' argument. There's just the one. But of course, it isn't the one. Because the name of the one is not the one being named. There's just one, and it is. And from the other way, he'd do bars. He wouldn't let you talk about anything else. But fortunately, there's no you separate from the one, and also no you talking about that separate from the one, because it's only the one. What this leads to is something like ancient Hindu mysticism. Everything breaks down and becomes inarticulate, so you end up chanting the sacred word, Om. 
because all of language has collapsed and all of reality has collapsed. There's only the um. And that's all there is. You may say there are different things, but you say that's impossible because different things aren't. There's only the one which is. Okay, you want things not to be what they are? Fine. Then you get the booming, buzzing, infinite confusion of Heraclitus, where there's an infinite number of things which are constantly changing at every individual instant of time. Well, that's awkward, because, you see, I thought that the home I left when I came here today is pretty much the one that I'm going back to um, tonight when I go home. I would imagine you feel similarly about your dorm room. And yet, if it's undergone change, it's not the same. On the other hand, if it hasn't undergone change, that's probably because it's part of the one, which is, of course, not part of the one, because there aren't any parts to the one, there's just the one. This leads to gibberish very quickly. All right? We don't have the conceptual tools to solve these problems. We have the question of how things can be the same and different at the same time. You're going to want to invoke the, or some of you are inclined to invoke the difference between, ex, between essence and accident. Okay, that's an interesting idea. Um, the question is, what's an essence and how do you find out about it? It seems when you learned about wood, nobody told you about the essence because it wasn't good for anything. It said, they said, Johnny, this is wood. Johnny, this is wood. Johnny, this is wood. And they pointed to wood and said, Johnny, are you dense or what? What is this? And if Johnny has anything in the way of wit, Johnny says, that's wood. And then we say, Johnny, you understand what wood is. And yet, none of us have discussed the essence of wood, which some people want me to believe is absolutely essential to this activity. But I do not know why. Okay. So now we've got being and becoming. God help us. Um, this is a rat's nest. This is an infinitely deep hole. Once you jump into being and becoming, you never come out. All right, that's what happened to poor Heraclitus and Parmenides. Now, Zeno comes along. Now, of course, Zeno isn't separate from Parmenides or the one. <laughs> that's first of all, right? <laughs> because there's only the one. And then he says, look, you guys, you're going to give me a hard time, and you think the one is silly, and you think that my telling you that the uh, world of the senses is not reliable. Let me try the problem of Achilles and the tortoise with you. Now, if you stop and think about that, Achilles doesn't move instantaneously because then he would be in two places at the same time. So whenever Achilles moves, he takes up some elapsed time. That's a fact. Now, if we let the tortoise go first, the tortoise crawls along. And then we say, Achilles, go get him. And Achilles runs up to the point where the tortoise was when we said, Achilles, go get him. But that took a period of time. And in that period of time, the tortoise got slightly ahead. And then we said, Achilles, keep going. And he does, and he catches up to where the tortoise was. But then, during that elapsed time, the tortoise got slightly ahead. So here's the deal. As a matter of logical fact, Achilles can't catch the tortoise. But in the world of the senses, you see that Achilles catches the tortoise all the time. What does that tell you? It's going to mean you're going to have to make a decision. Parmenides or Heraclitus? If it's Parmenides, then only the logic of motion being impossible, that's true. And that means that what you see in the world of Achilles touching the tortoise, that's not reliable and that's not real. You know? Isn't it because though in each segmented amount of time, Achilles has moved 
more than by a farther distance than the tortoise has? Well, no. We're, we're, all, we're every every move in the direction that the tortoise is is a series of gap closures. You're closing the gap to where the tortoise was. When you close that gap, it takes some time because it can't be in two places at the same time. Which means the tortoise has to have moved ahead somewhere. But then, is in each segmented amount of time, is an Achilles moving a farther distance than the tortoise is in that same? Well, time? in the world of the senses, we're going to watch Achilles win the race. He beats the tortoise. But I was asking you in the realm of logic when we think about the change of location of two things simultaneously. Um, no. Victor winning a race can do so while closing the gap to, to the slow tortoise that left first. And if that's a logical fact, then that means that that's a variance with what you see in the world. So you've got to make a decision because only one of them can be right. Which means we're going to get rid of the world around us and get rid of the world of the senses and think about the one. But of course, we're not going to think about the one since thinking isn't separate from the one, and neither are we. So there's just the one. Or there's an infinite plurality of things that constantly change and don't stay the same. And so there's nothing for you to think about. Ouch. We'll come back to this. Right? This is one of the um, great dangers of thought. Right? Uh, in our tradition, being is a very treacherous verb. Um, let me take it a little further, though. I like Pythagoras. Pythagoras is actually one of the great geniuses of our species. He came up with the otherwise rather improbable idea that everything is numbers. He was walking past a blacksmith shop. The blacksmith changed hammers. He hit it on the anvil, and he noticed that they were different tones. And so he went to the shop and said, do that again. And he looked at it, hit it, and then he used the other hand, hit it with that. He noticed that the ratio between the tones was exactly the same, was proportional to the difference in the weight of the hammers. So he said, ah, secretly hidden inside sounds are numbers. Then he went home and he said, we're going to see if how far this goes. Let's try guitar strings. And let's stretch them out and pluck them. And then let's cut the length of the string in half. And we'll find that we've dropped an octave. Plucking strings. The tone relates to the length of the string and the thickness of the string. Everything is numbers. So he said, secretly inside all of the things we hear, the, the inner reality of that is number. Now this project is going to be finished in the late 1600s by a guy named Isaac Newton. He's going to put a pinhole through one of those curtains and he's going to get a prism and he's going to shatter that light and break it into its colorful parts, the, the subsets of white light. And he says, wow, check this out. Hidden inside vision, hidden inside color itself, is mathematics. Because each of those colors that we get from you know, the seven colors of the spectrum, they each refer to a different angle of refraction from the prism. That's the final act of Pythagoreanism. What they managed to do over the course of about 2,000 years is show that in some way, in some sense, all the things that we experience with our senses are math or can be described as math. That's something important. 
So the idea that we're going to describe science using mathematics, or we're going to describe nature using mathematics, um, is not easy or obvious. Pythagoras is the great guy to figure that out. Now he goes kind of loopy, you know. He turns this into a religion, so we all have to worship numbers, and we all get together, and we sit and we do mathematics together because that's the way of freeing your brain. And doing that for a long time allowed him to figure out the relationship between the sides and the hypotenuse of right triangles. And that was a solid achievement because it applies to all right triangles. Not all the ones you've seen, but all conceivable right triangles. Okay, we're making real progress there. All right. Now, he believes in the, in the immortality of the soul so he won't let any of his fellow monks, they're mathematical monks, he won't let any of them eat flesh because Uncle Joe could have died and been turned into a cow and then you would be eating your Uncle Joe and we can't allow for any kind of cannibalism. So since the, that's literally the reason why Pythagoras thought that you can't eat meat because he believed in um, reincarnation and he believed in the immortality of the soul and you never know when your parents are going to show up next if your parents are, de are dead and have turned into a pig well then you don't want to eat mom well, that's not right yeah oh yeah yeah um, now you know the, the, there are certain numbers that are male and certain numbers that are female I won't go there but yeah he does believe that so there are n female progressions of numbers and male progressions of numbers all kinds of weird stuff going on. But here's the point. He's identifying mathematics as something important for knowledge, and he's right about that. The mumbo-jumbo that he attaches to it, that just comes from being the first. I mean, if you don't have um, a set of ideas that you call mathematics, and you don't have an understanding of what those things are and how they work, who knows what's going to get attached to it? Now, of course, when they find out that the square root of 2 is an infinitely expandable number, it's an irrational number, that puts them on lockdown. You can't tell anyone about that. It's secret. The idea of secret math is silly. Right. You can't, I mean, the least secret thing in the world is math. All right. Now, next we get Empedocles. Empedocles is really important. He's the guy that comes up with the idea of elements, that there are things, substances, that when they connect together, form the objects of sense perception. And the substances he believes in are earth, air, fire, and water. See that little diagram up there? Here's the deal. Earth, air, fire, and water are solids, liquids, gases, and energy, the principle of transformation, which is fire. So we got three phases of matter, and then we got the idea of transforming one into another. And that's what fire is there for, that's energy. Now here's the deal, that little visual aid there. That's the first, that's the first uh, draft of what will eventually become the periodic table of the elements. 
We'll have to wait for Science 3.0 to get that, but that's the idea, yeah. They've started work on it. Okay. Lucre, or rather, Empedocles also believes that there are two physical forces, love and strife. When things merge and blend, that's love. They love each other. When things do not merge and do not blend, that's strife. Let me give you an example. You can miss, you can mix water and wine, and you will get watered down wine. Right. Why? Because water and wine love each other. They get along, so when you pour them together, they mix. On the other hand, we can pick we can put together oil and water. And it turns out that oil and water don't like each other. They have strife between them. Which is why when you shake up the bottle, the water goes to the bottom and the oil goes to the top and there's nothing you can do to prevent them from separating out. Why? Because they don't like each other. That's strife. Things combining because of love. Things separating because of strife. So now we have, we've put earth, air, fire, and water in motion now. And this is actually a pretty sophisticated set of ideas given that he's starting with nothing. So you've got to give the pre-Socratics a break because they ran into all the conceptual problems that we have all night. Quickly getting to bow gibberish, what am I talking about? And remember, they don't have the set of concepts like matter or space that you and I have. All right? Imagine trying to invent an idea like matter out of nothing. You don't have any tradition, any culture that has a word for it. So what you're going to say is, look, all is water or all is air. That's the idea of it. Gesturing is something that doesn't exist yet. It's called matter. Finally, Leucippus and Democritus. What they come up with is atomism. They disagree with Empedocles because they don't think that matter is made up of earth, air, fire, and water. They think there's some substrate beneath earth, air, fire, and water that generates those substances and fire. So, for the elements, the, each of the elements, earth, air, fire, and water, have different properties. On the other hand, for an atomist, all of the things that you see in the world, tables and chairs, water and wine and fire and earth, all of those are different modifications of one thing, which is atoms. These are the smallest bits of stuff, smallest substantial things that can't be broken down any further. And the universe is a whole bunch of these constantly connecting and disconnecting. That's what the world is. This is a very sophisticated, completely materialistic, naturalistic reduction in the account of the world. This is a breakthrough. Right? What we have here is a new way of thinking about what the world is and what we are by implication. Yeah? Well, isn't that one right? Like, isn't everything made up of atoms? So everything made up of atoms. Um, try telling that to Homer. But so, but speaking of now, like, he would have gotten that right yeah. back then. Yeah, I mean, that's then. what we think now, yeah. On the other hand, if we have another scientific revolution, who knows what we're going to think next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but now, it turns out that matter has been a kind of handy idea. We've been able to do a lot with it. All right. Now, we have a new conception of the world around us. There's no point in performing rituals 
and throwing magic fairy dust at a world that doesn't contain any spooks or spirits or things that go bump in the night. If the world is all these little pieces of matter doing whatever it is they do, connecting and disconnecting with other stuff, there's no point in talking to it. And now we have a problem. Every time we change our understanding of the external natural world, we always change our understanding of what's left in the world, us. Who's going to present the softness? Somebody, go, give us the softness, good. I'm going to stay here while you're doing it. Argumentation. Thank you. I was like, I don't know what the suffix is. Um, and semantics and all that jazz. Um, after him comes, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Gorgias? Gorgias. Gorgias? He's my favorite. Okay, yes, he's interesting. He's the um, Darth Vader of knowledge. <laughs> okay. He's gone over to the dark side. I really like him. Um, okay, so he was, um, as the board says, nihilistic. Um, and, but he also dealt a lot with um, the basis of rhetoric, such as like he was, at least the author of this book attributes the whole beginnings of rhetoric to Gorgias. Um, I'm gonna have to trouble pronouncing his And so things, I found it super fascinating um, because I love rhetoric. Um, so things like, he came up with stuff like antithesis um, and like the whole triplet idea of like when you're listing things, like things are more powerful in threes. Um, and isocolons, which are really cool, um, which is like succession of sentences in 
start of the whole like rhetorical like argumentation, like how things are ordered and how to use words to your advantage to um, be more persuasive, um, which is really, really fascinating. Um, but he did also claim that, um, it says he claims that, he claimed to prove nothing has being and that even if it did have being, it could not be comprehended and that even if it could be comprehended, it could not be communicated to anyone else. Ah, uh, we've opened the can of worms again. <laughs> this time we've opened the other half of the can. Yeah, um, which is like our problem with being is, like we don't, we, we don't, um, we don't comprehend it as we understood earlier. Um, out the hard way. We don't really comprehend it. Um, so he was he was great. Um, but yeah, so he was a whole nothing actually exists and even if it does exist, we don't understand what it is, so it just doesn't exist. Um, okay, then after him was I have Prodicus. Prodicus, yeah. Prodicus? Okay. Um, he, there's some um, debate about him he was a little bit um, slightly different from the other sophists. Um, he wasn't completely relativist as Protagoras was. Um, he's, he talks about, I have a quote, um, when someone, I quote from the quote, um, when someone learns the right way to use a thing, he does not make the thing good. It is always good as long as the right way used. So he didn't talk about necessarily the fact that good of the thing is relative to the person using it, like the thing actually is good in and of itself, instead of just. Uh, he's, he's trying to tidy up the use of words. Remember that we live in a society that doesn't have a dictionary, so there's no authoritative account of what a given term means. And he says, I've noticed that when people use the same words and mean different things, or when they have slightly different shades of meaning, often that leads to impasses. So what he wants to do is tidy up language, saying what we really need to do is make our words more precise. There's something to be said for that. It may not solve all problems, but it probably solves some. Go ahead. The only guy we really need is Thersimachus. Okay, so I will go to Thersimachus. Um, Thersimachus, um, so cool. So he was, in terms of justice, um, that was his big thing with um, Plato's Republic. and justice was inter- like the stronger you are, like justice works in your favor, basically. Um, like justice was always from the stronger party, and it should favor like the greater good uh, in terms of like it should benefit the greatest number of people or the stronger group of people. Yeah, the stronger is different from the greater number. Right. In other words, whoever has the most power and the most violence is most right. Mm-hmm. And justice is whatever the most powerful say it is. Right. Um, Big fish eat little fish, and uh, the powerful decide what what's justice and what isn't. Whatever they tell you is just is just, because they're powerful. What it amounts to is the idea that might equals right. Right. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> um, so he. So at one point um, he said somewhere that. Justice is nothing other than the advantage of the stronger party, which is what we were saying. Um, but he also said elsewhere that it's the promotion of someone else's good. 
So, which is sort of a contradictory statement in the fact that someone else's good could mean the good of the weaker party. Um, well, I think what he's driving at there is that um, justice is someone else's good. In other words, if I hold a gun on you and say, give me your money, that's justice. Um, just, I, I forced this justice on you, and now this is justice, because justice, as Mao says, as Mao Zedong said, grows out of the barrel of a gun. So justice, then, is a statement not about morality, it's a statement about power. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily justice in, its, in a moral sense anymore, it's just justice of, like, self-benefit. Um. Okay, that's a good job. Um, as we go on through the term, try and move further away from the book and more to just talking on your own. Okay. All right. But you did a good job. Have a seat. All right, let's do the sophists, because the sophists are cool. The sophists are the intellectual children of pre-Socratic physics. These sophists were wise guys. They had special knowledge, sophistes. And the knowledge they had was... First of all, of rhetoric, they teach you how to talk. Particularly, they teach young men how to speak fluently and persuasively in public gatherings. So for legislation, or for courts, or for uh, public policy discussions, they would teach you how to get what you want. All right? So in other words, they'll teach you how to persuade people. But persuading people isn't necessarily a logical process. You can persuade people by tricking them as well. And what the sophist did was try was offer to teach young men the science of rhetoric and also arete. They also claim to be able to teach human virtue. But remember that the virtue they're teaching is very different from the arete, from the virtue of the Homeric warrior. Achilles has lots of virtue because he kills you. I mean, he's the big slaughterer. He's the terminator. What the sophists are going to do is teach you how to get what you want. And getting what you want and creating great desires and satisfying those great desires, that's what human greatness is. So if you could figure out how to get over on everybody, how to take everybody's stuff, how to deceive and perplex other people so that your desires were realized. Yeah? This sounds like an extreme version of Odysseus. In some ways it is, yes, that's right. Um, they still have the moral outlook left over from the Homeric poems. They haven't completely worked out the fact that we're going to have to change our understanding of good and evil of ethics, but also our understanding of political order and change, and our understandings of what makes people human, and what makes a human excellent. All right. So the sophists are rhetorical experts that teach young men how to speak persuasively. And they teach them for high tuition, high prices. They charge high fees. And they teach young men how to get what they want. So if you're guilty they, in a court of law, they'll teach you how to persuade the jury that you're innocent. If you want a political appointment, 
They'll teach you how to persuade the audience that you're the man for the job. If you want property or you want some sort of indulgence, they'll teach you how to get that too. So sophists claim to will teach young men how to speak as a vehicle by which to gain political power. And power is an end in itself for the sophists. Getting what you want is what they teach you how to do. Now, this is going to lead us to a whole collection of interesting problems. The first one will be Protagoras' relativism. Protagoras says, look, some people like chocolate and some people like vanilla. That's a fact. And if you ask me which is better, chocolate or vanilla, Protagoras would say, depends on what you like better. Some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla. And he'll say, uh, is, uh, is benevolence towards children a good thing or a bad thing? Well, some people think it's good, whereas there are other people that don't like children, so no, it's bad. There's no matter of fact, it's just a question of perspective. So everybody has their own perspective, and no perspective is better than any other, and no perspective is truer than any other. If you were to tell Protagoras that relativism isn't true for me, you begin to have a problem. Because Protagoras is then stuck saying that relativism is both true and not true. Right? And so that's the problem. In other words, and you still hear a lot of this in kind of California, Marin County uh, cocktail parties where you have your view and I have my view and we all have different perspectives on things and there's no external reality. <laughs> um, very quickly, if you think about that, that will turn out to be gibberish because it means that both perspectivalism and the rejection of perspectivalism are both true. Or another way of phrasing it is that perspectivalism is simultaneously true and false. Absolute relativism does not make sense. Relative relativism can only be relative to whatever it is that's not relative. I hate it when that happens. Right, when you get this terrible psychological mess when you try to grope your way through difficult problems. All right. The second guy we've got to look at is Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus says what many people believe. It'd be best if I could get everything I want. That's when I would be happy and that's when I would be well off. And he says, look, key thing is power. If you get power, then you get everything else. So justice is the advantage of the strong. What that means is that if I hold a gun on you and I say, give me your wallet, um, you can either give me your wallet or you can have me kill you. And if, I, and if you say that's unjust, you're taking my wallet, I will say it can't be unjust because I have the gun. In other words, what you mean by being just is being the strongest. And whatever I say, since I'm the strongest, that's just. 
So justice is whatever the stronger says it is. And if you don't like that and you're the weaker, then you can try and tell him no and get yourself killed. Or you could agree with him that justice is whatever he says it is, give him your wallet, and then you will have engaged in a just transaction. Yeah? Would you talk about the same kind of justice that Plato's talking about in the Republic, or is this another issue of not having two parties? Well, um, no. He'll just say that ju- what he's doing is being not normative about justice, but empirical. He says, in any society, if you ask, who decides what's just and what's unjust in the society? It'll always be the people that have the power to coerce other people. So if you have a, suppose you have a, a regime on some island somewhere, and their taxation scheme is such that only people whose first name begins with L, they're the only people that get taxed. Everybody else doesn't have to pay any taxes, only those people. And they say, look, we have the power to coerce everybody whose name begins with L. We do coerce them. They kick the money into the treasury, and now our treasury is funded. This is justice. Why? This is justice in an empirical sense. We made people do this. We have the power, and we we call the thing that they did justice because we have the power to make them do that. So it's a non-normative idea of justice. It's an empirical idea of justice. Whoever has the gun in their hand makes the rules. And they get to decide what's justice and what isn't. Is he saying that's how it should be or that's how it is? He said that's how it is. And then he's going to ask you, if you want to say that something else that is, uh, is how it should be, what are we talking about? The world is what it is. What do you mean by how it should be? So you're going to say, that which is, is. And to say that that's not how it ought to be just doesn't make sense. I have the gun. It's a primitive conception of justice. He's trying to be scientific about it. All right. Now, Gorgias, he's my favorite. That's my man. All right. Um, he needs that black Darth Vader suit. Right, he used to talk with that James Earl Jones voice. And he says, he's figured out some things. First of all, um, he can teach anyone rhetoric and teach them also. And when they say, can you teach Arate? Can you teach human virtue? He just laughs at them. That's his answer. He writes a beautiful piece called The Encomium on Helen. An encomium is a speech of praise. It's like a eulogy. And Helen is the single worst human being in Greek mythology. Hers is the face that launched a thousand ships. She got a whole bunch, thousands of men killed. She got the city of Troy completely destroyed. And then she got away with it and went back to Menelaus's castle. Okay, he says, you don't understand. All right. Helen was either forced to do what she did, in which case she wasn't blameworthy, or she was mistaken because she was persuaded by the importunings of Paris, in which case she wasn't blameworthy. But whatever caused her to do that, it wasn't her decision, so she wasn't blameworthy. Similarly, when uh, she left Menelaus and went to Troy, 
Um, she clearly thought that was good, and she was clearly being deceived, so it wasn't her fault either. The idea is this. Gorgias says, look, I can get Helen of Troy off. All right? What that means is you, who have much um, smaller moral and, and, and judicial problems, I can get you off no matter what you've done. In other words, look, if I can show that Helen of Troy was really great, well then, I assure you that if you're charged with murder or theft or rape or burglary, whatever you're charged with, I can get you off. I can tell, I can tell that jury that you are a really great person and they will believe it and at the end of that, instead of giving you a punishment, they will give you the key to the city. I am Gorgias. Yeah. In the Encoming on Helen, he says he has all sorts of subtle uh, pushes in his direction. Uh, indeed, persuasion may not have the appearance of compulsion, but it has the same power. There's, there's a word from our sponsors. There we go. Right. So, yeah. Um, see what you can get if you learn rhetoric. You can get everything you want. You can always be just. You can always be powerful, and no one can restrain your ego. You desire, and you desire, and you desire, and you can have all the things you desire, provided you pay my fee. Okay. He was also a nihilist, and I have to admit I really like this, because he's been listening to Heraclitus and Parmenides in particular, and... Uh, all he can do is laugh. He said, look, you guys are trying to figure out the way things really are. That's a waste of time. In fact, I, being a master of the science of rhetoric, I can persuade you of whatever I need to persuade you of, regardless of what is or isn't. All right? And you will believe what I tell you to believe. So he says, first off, nothing can be known you got to like that because it's kind of a conversation stopper. Right? Whenever you want to ask a question, he's going to say, well, look, nothing can be known. So your question, whatever it is, doesn't have any answer. And there is no matter of fact because there aren't any facts. That's because nothing exists. You see, you would have to exist before it had a quality and before you could talk about it. So nothing exists. Now, that means that neither Gorgias nor this argument exists. Nor does Parmenides and his weird ideas about the being. That doesn't exist either. Nothing exists. Okay. Next. Suppose hypothetically someone were to insist that things exist. Even if they do exist, you can't know anything about them. That also is a real conversation stopper. If things exist but you can't know anything about them, Try and think of something to say. Yeah? So what would we say we think we know about? Because people think they know. You don't think you know anything because you don't exist and neither does anything else. Did people believe him when he said this? No, they were perplexed. What the hell's going on? We just came from Parmenides. And now, now we're finding before every before the one exists and now nothing exists. And then things were kind of squiggly and moving around with their What the hell's going on? Yeah. What was his reasoning for why nothing exists again? Um, because he says so. He just says nothing exists. Nothing exists, yeah. And how does he back that up? He, what do you mean back it up? Nothing exists. There's no backup to give. He just, okay. <laughs> he just says that. Well, again, if nothing exists, there's no him either. Or statement. 
You see how this is going to be a real short discussion. All right. So nothing exists, nothing can be known. And then my favorite, if anything exists and can be known, it can't be communicated. <laughs> That's such a twisted idea. No, this guy's really funny. I mean, what he realizes is this is all an elaborate game and that what we think is deep philosophical insight is just gin music. All right? He thinks that words have the cognitive significance of jangling wind chimes. <laughs> Once you realize that, you're playing tennis with the net down. Everything's in. Nothing exists. Nothing can be known. Nothing can be communicated. Now I'd like to teach you rhetoric. <laughs> what? Um, he is teaching you how to push words around to get the results that you want. That's all it is. Okay. Now, why is this important? Well, the other sophists claim to teach arete, which is virtue or excellence. When people ask Gorgias about arete, he just laughs at them. He doesn't say anything. And here's the deal. There's no response possible to laughter. Laughter is actually a devastating philosophical move if you can play it at the right time. No one has yet ever constructed a good argument against laughter. You can't have an argument with a song either. Right. So, uh, Gorgias says, well, since nothing exists, um, your argument and uh, the truth value you want to attach to it, that doesn't exist either, does it? No. But that's okay. Because even if it did, you couldn't know it. And then you couldn't communicate. So first of all, he wants to make communication impossible and being impossible. And then he says, now that we have nothing and, uh, and what I can explain to you is that at night all cows are black and I can persuade, I can show you how to persuade other people that the next cow they see is black or white or purple or whatever you want it to be. Because there's no reality to judge it by. I mean, you're kind of breathing at you, I am your father, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he has gone over to the dark side. This is the idea, those three points. Nothing exists, can be known, or communicated. That's the inverse of the logos. Okay. Now, why is this important? Here's why. All right. Ideas have consequences. You should put that in your notes. We will find out again and again and again that is true. The idea that we get from pre-Socratic physics that the world is what it looks like it is and it is not populated by spirits or spooks or minds inside natural things means that we are now living in a non-mythological non-religious, non-poetic, non-mythological world. In other words, we have something new. The Greeks invent this idea. It's called nature. The Greek word for it is phusis, P-H-Y-S-I-S. -S. <clears throat> it is the source of our word physics. 
<coughs> what they have done for the first time in human history <coughs> is made a jump out of the world of mythology and Apollo's golden chariot. <coughs> and now they live in a world where the magic has been subtracted. All the spooky glow-in-the-dark stuff disappears. <coughs> and what you see is what you get. So Anaxagoras tells us the sun <coughs> is a hot rock. It's not Apollo's golden chariot. Now here's the deal. Back in Homeric times, before we had this first scientific revolution, <coughs> when you were, went into a court of law and you were going to give testimony, they would swear you in, but they, you would have to swear by Apollo's golden chariot. Not the Bible, because the Bible hasn't been written yet. On the other hand, Apollo's golden chariot sees all and knows all. And at the end of the day, Apollo goes back to Mount Olympus and he tells Father Zeus, Who's been naughty and who's been nice? And if you perjure yourself, if you make an oath to the gods and then lie, Father Zeus is going to fry you with a thunderbolt. So don't mess with Father Zeus. Now, if you believe that Apollo's golden chariot sees all and knows all, and that the penalty for perjury is being fried by Father Zeus, you are going to tell the truth. So help you God. All right. That works pretty well while everybody believes the Homeric myths. <clears throat> what happens when a new theory of nature emerges that says that the sun is not Apollo's golden chariot, that it's a hot rock? Well, when you take those new physical ideas and apply them to, hu to human society, what you're going to find out is that when you're expected to give testimony in a court of law, since the sun is not Apollo's golden chariot, it's a hot rock, and because the hot rock doesn't care whether you tell the truth or not, the smart thing to do for the wise guy who understands where we are now is to lie. So now we have the internal moral and political breakup of the polis. In other words, this scientific revolution destroys the mythic foundation of politics and social cohesion. If you kill somebody and get away with it, there's no judgment in Hades where bad stuff happens to you. Yeah, so sorry. So the idea then is this, <clears throat> this new physics demythologizes the world. And when these sophists figure out how to apply that to the human world, political life and social life are now shaken to their foundations. <clears throat> Wealthy, well-connected young men have been raised to be skeptical about the myths they inherited from Homer. 
And if they don't think that the gods are going to punish them or that the gods exist at all, then it's like the old Oakland Raiders where they said, just win, baby. It's about winning. In other words, what this is going to be is the same assumptions that you're going to see later on when we read Machiavelli. Politics is not about mythology, and it's not about the afterlife, because there's no such thing. Politics is about winning. It's about here and now. <clears throat> so, a wise guy who knows the new facts about the world and knows what that means for, the, for human life is now going to be systematically <coughs> self-interested and indifferent to moral, to moral traditions. What this means is, is that the polis is in trouble. The polis is actually being destroyed, not just Athens, but all of them, are being destroyed by these sophists and their corrosive message Contra morality. <clears throat> so what we have here then is a political and moral and religious crisis. <clears throat> we can't go back because the Homeric, the tradition of science 1.0 is just no longer plausible. It's like trying to get back your virginity. Once it's gone, it's gone. Well, once you've lost your innocence with regard to nature, you can't go back to thinking that the sun is Apollo's golden chariot. You can't get yourself or anybody else to believe that. What does that mean? We are now in completely uncharted borders. We now <clears throat> have policies of immense and increasingly great power. They dominate their enemies, they demand tribute, they invade their enemies. And now, there's no moral compass to guide them. So instead, they decide that justice is the advantage of the stronger. And that means that if you're lying in court and your opponent is telling the truth, <clears throat> if you're strong enough to overcome his truth with your lies, that's justice. Okay? And what that means is that social cohesion, which every political form requires, is collapsing. It means that politics, ethics, religion, all of the human sciences, as opposed to the natural sciences, <coughs> either have to be fixed or our society and our, polit our political form is going to collapse. We are in desperate trouble. And yet, God is thoughtful enough to send somebody in to straighten this out. He comes from the realm of the gods. He's not even really human. He's going to invent something new. This new invention is called philosophy. And the guy that's going to work against the sophists to try and create a new religion and a new politics and a new ethics and a new understanding of logic and a new understanding of nature and a new understanding of being. That's Socrates. That's why the Greeks invent philosophy 
at the time and the place they do. It's not because they all say, hey, why don't we all get rational? No, they do that because they absolutely have no other choice. If you don't create a new politics, a new ethics, a new theory of society, a new religion, a new account of everything that is intellectually serious in this new intellectual context, then we're going to collapse. We're doomed. So this is why the Greeks in the 5th century BC invent philosophy and a lot of other rational stuff, as opposed to saying the Eskimos or the Polynesians. It's not that those people were stupid, just that they had no need to do this because their myths were working fine. It's here that they've broken down. <coughs> so the Greeks have to push off into a new domain. And this is going to be the intellectual fallout of science 2.0. Now, when we get our next scientific revolution, now, uh, in China, they're going to have a 2.0 scientific revolution on their own, which is pretty amazing. The Chinese are very smart. It's about 200 years after this one. <coughs> and they're going to end up with the same new conception of politics and ethics and mythology and everything that's going to come out of that. But later on, we're eventually going to get a third scientific revolution. Uh, I'm going to refer to it as Science 3.0, hoping that the numbers would show you the connection. And uh, that would be Enlightenment science or, or, or Renaissance science. That would be Newtonian mechanics. And you know what happens after they get this new conception of nature? They have to change all their ideas about politics and ethics and religion and art and mythology and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then there's going to be a science 4.0. That's going to be a revolution at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And that new revolution is going to give us relativity and quantum mechanics. And you know what's going to happen? All the other domestic human sciences are going to have to change given the new facts about the world. We're going to get all kinds of new art, for example. Think of recordings of movies. We're also going to get all kinds of new moral ideas. Think of existentialism. We're going to get new political ideas. Think of fascism. Think of Nazism. Think of communism. So my point is this. <coughs> Throughout the history of the world, every time you have a scientific revolution, every other domain of culture changes. What I mean is that it's unidirectional. In other words, it's possible to change some element in human culture without creating a corresponding scientific revolution. For example, the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire did not produce a new scientific revolution. The expansion of Islam after the death of the prophet did not create a new scientific revolution. Uh, the advent of motion pictures, did not, it was a new kind of art, did not create a new scientific revolution. But whenever you have a new scientific revolution, all those other domains do change. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's actually quite right because the, uh, the spread of Christianity did change the conception of nature. Uh, if you look at uh, Galen uh, in the early second century, he looked at the Christians and said, okay, if you guys hold to this, you're going to have to change your conception of nature. You're going to have to say that all, everything was created by an omnipotent God, mm -hmm. which is in fact what they did, and that idea spread 
and that's the way that people looked at nature for about a thousand years. Well, they did, but those people that looked at nature that way, um, if they had the opportunity to go to a Galenic physician as opposed to a faith healer, um, the ones that had access to Galen's medicine did so because they were admitting, at least in practice, this works better. I'm not denying that in the slightest, I'm just right. saying but that cultural changes do affect our conception of nature. Right. Conception of nature is not the same thing as a scientific revolution. You can modify your conception of nature by saying there are or not clouds in the sky. Right? That change does not change the way you think about natural phenomena. A scientific revolution changes the way you think about the phenomena in the world around you. And that can't help but generate new questions about once you think the world is different, you also think, well, I must be different too. So I ask a new question. And then these new questions lead to new conceptions of, of human beings, new self-conceptions. And these self-conceptions help generate new questions about nature. That's what human history is. It's a dialectic back and forth of people trying to figure out the stuff that's around them, which is trying to kill them. And also trying to figure out who they are and what they are. There are two big questions in human life that all cultures ask and answer. One, where are we? And the answer is embedded in nature. And question two is, who are we? And the answer is, we are the people embedded in this. The qualities we attribute to ourselves are connected with our understanding of the world around us. If you think that malaria is caused by evil spirits, shaking a rattle at them, doing a little dance, and singing a song, it makes perfectly good sense. <clears throat> think of the Iliad, book one, what causes epidemics? Dis disrespect to Apollo's priest, give the girl back and the epidemic is cured. That's science 1.0. Right? Science 2.0, when we decide that natural diseases or natural things like diseases have natural causes, there's no point in talking to Apollo or his priest then. You change what you think the world is, it means you change the human discipline, what we might call for brevity's sake, the humanities. All right? So there's a back and forth between human beings and the world around them, and then the changes in their understanding of the world around them changes their understanding of themselves. That's what the sophists are. It used to be, don't get cute with Apollo. He'll tell Zeus you'll get fried. Now, Apollo isn't real. Bombs away. Say whatever you want as long as you can make it convincing. That's the problem that's created by this. And that's what Greek culture, or the high point of Greek culture, the Greek golden age, is a response to. And I'll show you all the ways in which it gets responded to when we read uh, tragedy and when we read history, Thucydides in particular. All right, This, I know it's going to sound strange, but this is absolutely essential to understanding what's going to come on later on in, in the history of thought. All right, Give these guys a break. They're trying to do um, quite a bit with very inadequate intellectual resources. You are the heirs of 25 or 30 centuries of intellectual development. You've inherited all these ideas, which makes it possible for you to categorize your experience and categorize the world. All right? They didn't have that. They had to forge these ideas out of nothing. And that's really hard. 
A final thing, I'll let you go with this idea, because I know we're, we're past three hours now. Here's the deal, though. When you ever get a chance, and I assume that you do, although I don't know what your curriculum is exactly, I assume that you, at some point in the course of your education here at AMU, um, you read the patristics, you read people like Origen and Tertullian and uh, Ambrose and Augustine, you're all looking at me like you never heard of the patristics. <laughs> the early church fathers, the patristics. I'm talking to Buddhists. Yes, <laughs> we do. Um, you, you heard about that. Okay, here's the deal. Give them a break. Uh, Origen was a really brilliant guy. He was also certifiably insane. He castrated himself in order to be more pleasing to Jesus. Okay. Um, Tertullian didn't believe in reason. What does reason have to do with the church? Nothing. Well, then, blah, blah, blah. So there. I mean, that's what it would be, it'd be involved in actually getting rid of reason. That's a problem. Okay. <clears throat> the patristics are to religion what the pre-Socratics are to nature. They're forging the early elements, the early ideas. So, for example, Tertullian said, those of you who apostatize during persecutions and you, you uh, turn your back on Jesus, um, Jesus isn't forgiving you. He can't forgive you. He just doesn't forgive that stuff. So these are, he, he starts arguing for the limitations on divine forgiveness. Regard, look, you repent, it doesn't make any difference. Jesus doesn't go for it. Okay, give these guys a break. They think all kinds of bizarre stuff. But the reason why is exactly the reason that the pre-Socratics think all kinds of bizarre stuff. They have not inherited the conceptual tools with which to articulate and think about the stuff they're working on. They have to make those up. It takes many centuries to work this out. Right? So there's a German saying, all beginnings are hard. Everything is hard when it starts. This is hard, it's a mess, and it's really hard to do. So these guys are great geniuses, even though they don't seem it. And so are the patristics. Okay? Now, next week we are doing what? What are we reading? Herodotus. Herodotus, yes indeed. All right, who wants to present Herodotus? All right, you, all right, and he's uh, injured, so we need somebody to help him out. Who else is going to do Herodotus? Ladies? You. Yes, you. All right. You talk to him about Herodotus. You figure out how you want to divvy it up, and you talk about the stuff when we come in. Herodotus is a trip. All right. Um, he's a fun thing to teach. And the ideas he comes up with are kind of entertaining, which is um, at least one of the good things, characteristic of a good history. I will see you all next week. <laughs>